0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Lamentations 3, on page 669, and we do not have to lament, this is not a lamenting verse. Lamentations 3, uh, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I have a question for you at the start of the sermon today, as I often do, which is, when is the last time that you changed your mind about something? <laughs> this morning. This morning, okay, all right. <laughs> um, I gave some of the Zoom people a, a heads up about this question, so they might be, like, pasting in their answer, uh, look, somebody did that. <laughs> do I dare to read Dan's answer uh, cold without reading it ahead? He says, yesterday... Oh, he says, no. Um, okay, I'm just going to let his answer stand for the people on Zoom. And um, Dan changed his mind yesterday. Dan Gladding. <laughs> Dan Proctor this morning. Can anybody beat this morning? <laughs> How many, let's do it this way. How many people change your mind a lot? the other side is going to be hate changing your mind, right? How many people change your mind a lot? Okay, a few. And the hate changing your mind people? All right. Wow, it's about 50-50. I don't know why I do this, because I always have it in my mind that everybody's going to answer the same way, and you never do. So, um, But I mean about something important. I'm not talking about, like, what color car to buy or something. I'm talking, like, when's the well, last time you changed your mind about something to do with politics or your experience of the COVID pandemic, and your views about that, or your, the way you order your garbage plate, or religion, or have many of you really changed your mind about something really big recently? I'm seeing a little bit less enthusiasm there. There are a couple people who are giving me nods and waves and things. Apparently, I sent the Zoom crowd into an existential crisis. I'm so sorry, everybody. (laughs) Did you want to share an example, Penny? Um, Yeah, um, my oldest son, who I love nearly, is a police officer. Hmm. he uses it for is to make sure that the people that they grant can be charged with something Mm. at any time. And um, starting last year, uh, especially with Daniel Crew. For the first time in my life, he's been in the middle That's powerful and deeply personal. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I'll, I'm only gonna barely summarize it for the Zoom folks who couldn't hear you. Penny's talking about her oldest son who's a, a veteran and a, and a police officer and um, kind of transitioning from from feeling more worried about what might happen to him than to, to feeling about um, what he might do to somebody else. And um, as a person with many law enforcement officers in my family My own, I, I wouldn't echo that, ex, that exact experience but my definitely one of the big things that has changed in my life over the last several years has been my perspectives about about um, law enforcement and how it works in our country. It's a pretty big change especially when it comes time to think about people in your in your family who are affected by it. Uh, that's just one example, and we'll leave it with just one because I, you can see it very quickly could get heavy. But the truth is we we very rarely change our minds about very big things. And, and we've all been in arguments with friends or coworkers or family members about some of the big things in the world. And we, we're so convinced of our position... And we're so right, and yet they refuse to change their mind. You're picking up the irony in what I'm saying, I hope. By the way, if you're in one of those arguments and you really are sure that you're right and that that they're wrong, you can just ask, this, this is my get out of argument free card, okay? Here, this is my gift to you. Ask them this question. What would it take for you to change your mind about this? What piece of evidence would, it, would actually make you change your mind? And they will respond, nothing could make me change my mind. And that's when you know that the conversation is over. And you don't have to fight anymore. <laughs> you know one group of people who's really good at changing their minds? Scientists. Scientists are really good at changing their minds, because the whole purpose for doing what they do is to change their minds. Right? I am not a scientist, but my understanding of the scientific method is that you observe the world around you, and you make a hypothesis, a prediction or guess about what will happen if you do a certain thing, and then you engage in a test called an experiment, and you see what happens. You observe the results, and then if the results are not what you expected, you change your mind. And that's how science works. Really wonderful, and I am like resisting right now the long rabbit trail about how people don't really understand what has happened with the study of um, infectious disease over the last year and a half, and how when things have changed, it's not because you know it's because the science revealed new information. And uh, um, that, but I said I'm resisting that rabbit trail. I'm going to continue to do that. The thing is, we religious people are not so good at changing our minds. Now Surely that's due, at least in part, to the fact that we're with spiritual matters. It's a, sort of a different category of understanding the world than um, like empirical, observable phenomena, right? But it's also, I think, because we think that the stakes are so high, right? So when you believe that you have the answers to the world's most difficult questions and the solutions to the world's most Difficult moral dilemmas, let alone the keys to an eternal kingdom, you tend to dig your heels in a little bit about that stuff. That is actually somewhat understandable. It would be kind of weird if you didn't. But there's one big problem with the digging in of the heels about religious matters, At least for people in our tradition, which is Christianity has its roots in Judaism. Like, That's not how it's ever been done. The digging in of heels. Well, the digging in of heels has always been happening, let's be honest. But that hasn't changed the change. For people who are steeped, and I hope that we are, in the Hebrew Bible and in the teachings of Jesus, and in the development of early Christianity, for us to be the ones who are unwilling to change our minds about things, even important things, stuff that feels like basic truths about the universe, that's just simply absurd. Because the whole book is filled with stories of people believing one thing, and then having an experience with God And then coming to believe something different. I'll I'll like breeze through a few examples for you. How about the story of Abraham? Originally Abram, who so he had a name change, but he also had a major worldview change, right? Initially he was clearly rooted in the culture of his day. You know, polytheism, idolatry, child sacrifice. And through a range of experiences with God, came to completely change the way that he saw the world. Rejecting some of those more barbaric practices, refining and honing his understanding of how the world works, and even his place in it as he went from a stationary life to a nomadic life. Um, the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 31, saying, the days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is long after Abraham and the whole tradition had been well established and everything was making sense. And the Lord says, I'm going to make a new covenant and then says, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. See, we look back at that from way in the future and go, oh, thanks be to God. But if God drops down and says, "Um, I'm going to do something new, it's going to be totally different from what you're expecting and what you're used to. Some of us would pull the chain and say, I'm getting off at the next stop. Here's one of my favorite things about the scriptures. There's a story that's told two times in the Old Testament. Uh, about David, King David sinning by taking a census of the people, right? And we don't need to go into the reasons why it was sinful to take a census of the people. That would be a, a different story. The point is it's told in two different books of the Bible that are written at least 100 years apart. And in the earlier one, um, 2 Samuel, it says that Yahweh, the Lord, incited David to take a census of the people in, in sin in doing so. And then when it's retold in First Chronicles 21, it says, Satan incited David to take a census of the people and to sin. Now, listen, I googled this this week. There are people who do backflips trying to explain that. <laughs> the fact is, their worldview changed. Early on, they thought one thing was the cause of everything, and then later they realized, uh-uh, there's another force at play here. That responsive prayer that we prayed together earlier was from Eugene's, Eugene Peterson's translation of the book of Isaiah. It's called the message. It's actually a translation of the whole Bible at this point. But in the NRSV, which is the Bible text that we the translation that we use most often here, that, that passage from Isaiah, that verse from Isaiah forty three, nineteen says, I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'm about to do a new thing. This is the Lord speaking. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And then a little later in that book, Isaiah 55, the Lord says, this is something my spiritual director gave me to think about this past week, and I was very upset with her because I didn't like it. Isaiah 55, the Lord says, my ways are not your ways. Dang it. Kind of wish they were. My ego really wishes they were. So, and all of this change, this pattern of adaptation and evolution came to a head in our Christian story at least and, and proved itself true again in the stories of the early church. And I preached a whole sermon series on this in April and May of this year called Open Doors. And it's, it's all about how when the earliest Christians who were Jewish converts began to have to reckon with the fact that God apparently wanted to welcome Gentiles into this movement as well. Which was huge. Their entire understanding, not only of their religious story and history, but of their sacred scriptures and how they interpreted them, was turned on its head. They had to completely reorient themselves. It's just a handful of examples. Like I said, our book is full of them. They are easy to miss, these stories of truth changing. They're easy to miss if you are religiously committed to the idea that it's impossible for the truth to change. But they're impossible to miss, in my view, if you read the stories openly and take them at face value. so then the question becomes what do we do how do we proceed with confidence as people of god in a universe where even our deepest commitments are sometimes challenged and rewritten here is here's what i can try to offer those situations. It has worked for me. I believe it has worked for the church historically. Sometimes when they've actually tried to employ this idea I offer it to you not as an expert, as a fellow traveler who's had their own mind kind of blown apart a couple of times. In situations where things tend to change, which is the situation we're in, it's called life I think it's best for us to decide on a framework of principles and then to allow those principles to guide us and shape our life and our experience as things change around us. And then, this is an important part, to hold everything else loosely Let me give you a five-second Mr. Rogers moment. Hold a fist. Make a fist, maybe two, like you're holding two jewels that are really important to you, and then imagine that you are suddenly going to decide to hold them loosely. I'm not saying you have to drop them. I'm just saying hold them loosely. All right. So these principles are the way that we decide what, what to do and what not to do, what to allow to change and what to hold tightly onto. And so for me, and for most of us in the service today, these principles are going to make total sense because they are utterly Christian, and that's our worldview. They are even uh, Trinitarian, in classical terms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the first principle will not be new to any of you who have listened to me preach over the last several years. The first principle is that Jesus is the fullest revelation of the Father. Especially Jesus offering himself On the cross is the fullest revelation of the heart of God. Jesus is the true Word of God, capital W. We use that term about the Bible, and that's okay, but Jesus is what God has to say. And that means that every depiction of God that we ever encounter, anywhere, whether it's in popular culture, whether it's in the church's tradition, whether it's in a sermon that you are hearing preached, including this one, or whether it's the Bible itself, every one of those pictures of God must be submitted to the perfect revelation of God that we are given in Jesus. Now, the church fails at this a lot. Including this church. Which I certainly hope exists and, and serves a, a function in, in the lives in some of your lives as an, an alternative to the standard kind of Western evangelical Christian church. We get that wrong too. So we need to be open to correction and willing to repent as needed, as often as is needed of pursuing a truth that is different from the one that would be given to us if we imagined that Jesus is what God actually has to say. So Jesus is the first thing. Duh, you knew that, right? But remember this. Even Jesus' closest disciples, the ones who walked with him physically on the earth for years, even they had to have their minds changed a bunch of times as his earthly ministry ended and the church was birthed. And the changes that they made, if you read the book of Acts, I would submit to you, are in response to the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the first principle. The Holy Spirit is the second principle that I offer to you. First, I would say, along with them, and I said this many times during the Open Doors series, if we see the Spirit at work in a person or in a group of people who we did not expect the Spirit to be at work in, we must be willing to open our hearts wider and our doors wider. Along with this, I would once again offer you the Ignatian method of discernment, which is another thing I've picked up from my spiritual director, which is to spend some time watching for the fruit of the spirit. All right, scientists, I'm going to invite you back in. This is as close to the scientific method as it gets. (laughs) Because I'm not super sure about much of anything. (laughs) But one thing I'm real sure about is that the devil is not going to try to trick you by giving you more love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. If those things are on the rise, the spirit is at work. And you can definitely keep on going. If those things are on the decline, no amount of religion is going to save you from the path that you were headed down. Maybe tap the brakes. And you can use this for your own life and you can use it to decide decide whether to put yourself under the teaching and instruction and leadership of some Christian guru. I sure hope that you do it about me. Not that I'm a guru. I didn't mean to say that I'm a guru. (laughs) So, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I'm not exactly asking you to think outside the box here. But I don't mean to make light of it either. Because in the past four weeks, I've asked you to wake up to a new day, to embrace a new season, to start a new life. And now today, I'm asking you to imagine the possibility of a new truth. And that might be the hardest one of all. It's actually quite heavy. It's not going to be easy. Thankfully, we are far from the first people of God to have experienced this. Read the book. And thankfully, there are some truths that do not change. The deepest ones seem to be pretty steady. Remember how we started our service today with those beautiful words from the book of Lamentations. And I love how Kristen said, you don't have to worry, this is not a lament. It's from the book of Lamentations, but it's not a lament. And she was absolutely right, but it's pretty much the only sentence in the book that isn't, (laughs) right? Which is wonderful context to have, because in that book of constant, like getting eaten by worms lament, Those beautiful words spring up through the soil. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord says, I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And if your response to that is, yes, but I'm scared. Yes, but I'm not sure. God also says, my mercies never come to an end. But God also says, they are new every morning. Even mercy itself springs new and will appear in different forms and in different places and in different ways. Great is God's faithfulness. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.